0: As we get into uh, these, these chapters this morning, Ezekiel 29, 25 to 32, deal with the conquest of these nations. 29 through 32 is going to deal with Egypt. Ideally, it would be to take the study and do chapters 25 through 32, because they deal with the same issue, the same subject, which would be um, Jerusalem has now been destroyed, and now God has turned his attention to these surrounding nations, we made it through most of them. This Wednesday we'll go verse by verse through 29 to 32, but I've taken a, a topical text out of our study on Egypt in particular this morning. I've entitled this, Choose This Day Whom You Will Serve, verse 8, chapter 29. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Surely I will bring a sword upon you and cut off from you, man and beast, and the land of Egypt shall become desolate and waste, and then they shall know that I am the Lord, because He said the river is mine, and I have made it indeed, therefore, I am against you and against your rivers. I will make the land of Egypt utterly waste and desolate from Migdal to Serene as far as the borders of Ethiopia, and neither foot of man shall pass through or foot of beasts shall pass through it, and it shall be uninhabited for 40 years. I will make the land of Egypt desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate and among the cities that are laid waste. Her cities will be desolate for 40 years, and I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Yet, thus says the Lord God, at the end of the 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among them from where they were scattered, and I will bring them back, the captives of Egypt, and cause them to return to the land of Pathmas, to the land of their origin, and and they shall be a lowly kingdom. It shall be the lowliest of kingdoms. It shall never again exalt above the nations, for I will diminish them so that they will not rule over the nations anymore." No longer shall it be the confidence of the house of Israel, but will remind them that their iniquity when they turn to follow them, meaning Egypt, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. As we get into um, this study today, um, again, up until this time, we've been dealing with... um, the overall theme of, of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I know I'm being repetitive, but that's how we learn. Uh, they had one message, and that was um, they're going into captivity. That was Jeremiah's message from Jerusalem. It's Ezekiel's message from Babylon. He's in Babylon. And up to this point, the final fall of uh, Jerusalem had not yet happened. So they were having problems in Babylon with the Israelites who were there because they had a bunch of false prophets there that were saying God would never destroy Jerusalem. You think he would destroy the house that he commanded uh, Solomon to build? It's not gonna happen. So there was a lot of confusion, mixed emotions. People didn't know what to believe. That is until Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem destroyed it and um, it happened this would have been the third siege Solomon's temple was completely destroyed and then in chapters beginning with chapter 25 we've been having studies on King Nebuchadnezzar now turning his attention and again looking at this map this is where we've been the last couple of weeks where he hit, takes on Tyre I found Tyre uh, very interesting. It's been a while since I taught through these chapters. Usually, takes us about seven years to get through the Bible, something like that. It's been the older I get, the longer it takes. <laughs> and um, but Tyre was a very, very opulent, prosperous, incredibly wealthy city, as we learned. And um, but one right after another, they all fell. This morning, we're going to be changing our focus, it's still part of the conquest of Nebuchadnezzar, but now he turns his eyes on Egypt. And Egypt, in its glorious days, was really uh, the first world-conquering empire. And of course, we've all seen the Ten Commandments and, and the building of Ramses and the opulence and the, and the, the beauty. Uh, boy, Sesame de Mills knew how to put together a movie and they spared no expense, and I thought they did a, did a great job in portraying some of the scriptures that we're going to look at this morning. But here we read that even though they were once the, the jewel of the world, in verse 15 it says they're going to become the lowliest of kingdoms. They would never again rise to prominence. But we're going to go back a little bit during their glory years when Moses was um, brought on the scene, and to begin with that, we need to, well, let's put the next slide up so we see that it's a continuation of uh, the conquest of Egypt and where Egypt is in reference to the rest of the Middle East. Of course, we have the great desert between uh, what was now current-day Israel, the Gaza Strip, and, um, of course, the Nile River was its greatest um, defense, as was the wilderness of Seir, and they were prosperous because of the Nile. A little bit of trivia, there's there's two, um, there's two rivers in the world that flow north. One of them is the Nile. What's the other one? The Fox River. Well, you guys are supposed to know that. You're from here. People li- watching live stream in Arizona right now don't have a clue. <laughs> no, it's true. Somebody said there was one more somewhere else, but I don't remember that one. It's insignificant to the study. But the Nile did flow uh, to the north, and it was the breadbasket. And many times um, when Israel was in trouble, they would turn to Egypt for its help. But as we read in verse sixteen, that's what's made reference to here, no longer shall it be confidence of the house of Israel. When Nebuchadnezzar made its threats, well, they actually sent money down, to They emptied out the treasury to get the, uh, 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 the king of Egypt to come and fight on their behalf. They were always looking back, always looking back to where, where they came from, which is really a big theme of where we're headed this morning. So uh, let's turn back to um, Exodus chapter 2 and look at just a little bit to refresh our memory of Moses, there rose up a king, that, a pharaoh that didn't know Joseph, who was second in charge during his lifetime. But then a pharaoh rose that did not know Joseph and did not have compassion on the um, Israelites that, that came after Joseph. We have the children of Israel living for 400 years in bitter bondage, the longer they were there, the worse it got. And we have the Lord hearing the cries, and we find the birth of Moses, and um, we'll just look at uh, well, the first ten verses here. It'll be familiar because everybody's here seeing seen the Ten Commandments. Uh, Exodus 2, and a man of the house of Levi went and took a wife of the daughter of Levi and so the woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was beautiful, a beautiful child, and she hid him for three months, but when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrush from there and dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the, in the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister, that would have been Miriam, stood afar off to know what would be done to him. And then the daughter... "'A pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, "'and her maidens walked along the riverside, "'and when she saw the ark among the reeds, "'she went and sent her maids to get it, "'and when she opened it, she saw the child, "'and behold, the baby wept. "'So she had compassion on him and said, "'This is one of the Hebrew children. "'And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, "'Shall I go and call a nurse?' for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you. And Pharaoh Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son so she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. The simple point that I want to make here is that Moses is Hebrew, but he grew up as an Egyptian, and whether a pharaoh in the Ten Commandments is it's hidden from Pharaoh, thinking it was his own son. But he grew up, we read in places learning all the wisdom and the inner secrets of this ancient and glorious kingdom that we call Egypt during its glory years. He grew up as this man of great prominence and um, rank and authority because of his relation to the Pharaoh himself. Um, I'd like to turn at this point to begin as we make our way through the Bible, one of our main goals is to see the totality of it all. When Jesus said, the volume of the book is about me, um, the real uh, meat, I think, of the word of God, the deeper stuff, and uh, not, not these simple top, topical studies that make you feel good and so on and so forth, but digging a little bit deeper and actually seeing the wonders of God's word and how it connects together and this this morning is one of those places where in Hebrews chapter eleven, which I'm going to ask you to turn to at this time, speaks of this event. The next couple of verses I'm going to read, I probably should have read them. You can stay in Hebrews, but let me read verse eleven. He's a grown man. And it says, It came to pass when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and he looked at their burden. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and he looked that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him. Well, the next day, a couple of Hebrews were fighting. And Moses tries to break up the fight. And um, one of them says, What are you going to do? You're going to kill me just like you killed the Egyptian just yesterday? And it freaked him out. And um, he had to make a choice. And um, that's where when we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 11, this is called, um, you know, the hall of faith. And um, it's given to us that we might desire to become men like this. Not men of the world, but men of faith. And so we read in verse 24 concerning Moses, this event where it says, by faith... Moses, when he became of age, that means he's a grown man, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, now I have that word underlined, he made a choice, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. If it was one thing that Egypt was known for, and I've been there several times, And I I, I see their pornography written on the inside of their tombs. And the wealth and everything that would go along with it, the hidden mysteries, the occult, the ability for Janus and Jambri to actually be involved with supernatural events, even duplicating some of the plagues that Moses brought. Um, Egypt was a remarkable place. And um, it was all Moses if he wanted it, but he made a choice. He said, no, my people are suffering, but I choose to identify with them rather than to enjoy the passing of pleasures of sin. Now, in this world that we live in, let's begin with the typology, and I'll get deeper into the typology in just a minute. But Egypt is always a reference to the world, always. And when we say of Egypt, it's actually a reference to what we came out of. We came out of Egypt. We came out of the world. And if we're honest, we have to say, yeah, there's certain pleasures that are in the world. But when you come to Christ, you have to make a decision. You have to choose. You have to look at God's people. And today, you've got to look really close. You know, a born-again Bible-believing Christian are becoming more rare and rare. And people who call themselves Christians are more involved really with self-gratification and a social agenda rather than a biblical agenda. Probably a good place for an amen. And we see it and we, we recognize that. But for us here this morning, this is going to be a personal one-on-one study. I'm not talking to any group, not talking to any one individual, but it is an individual study that I've called Choose this day whom you're going to serve. But remember, we Jesus said count the cost. Uh, Count the cost. That's what's not being taught today. If I choose to be with God's people, what terminology is put on it? Suffering. Well, that's not being being taught in the prosperity teaching. Not suffering, prosperity. So we have to make that distinction. We have to use discernment. What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is choosing leaving the one. Yeah, there's pleasures in that, the old life. And choosing, knowing that if I identify with Jesus, that he was despised, he was rejected, he tells us to pick up our cross and carry it, and that God's people are a group of people that will always be in a minority, and do you really want to associate with that? That's where we're headed with our study, the, study this morning. So... We find ourselves in, in Hebrews chapter 11 choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoying the passing, this passing pleasures of sin, and esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. One was had his eyes on the things of this life, the treasures of this life. But not Moses. Moses was looking for a reward that was yet future. And so by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover, the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. We'll deal with that in just a minute. And by faith they passed through the Red Sea on dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. Now the terminology and what's said here is every word of it is important because it implies a progression. And it's, first of all, leaving Egypt, passing through, uh, and how did they leave? Well, let's get, let's get into the, uh, the typology here. First of all, um, We like to say here that every New Testament teaching has an Old Testament picture. And so when the Lord, the the word church actually means called out ones, that you're called out. Well, what are we called out from? Called out from the world. Um, This world is not my home, we sing. We're just passing through. We're pilgrims and strangers. And so here we have a picture of the Christian life. What's the first thing that happens? You make a choice. And sometimes, if you were like me, I wrestled with that choice because I was a, a free spirit, loved to travel. I thought, well, those days are over. <laughs> and not knowing that just the opposite would be true. And, um, Jesus, you know, Scripture says, you seek your own life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, what, for my sake, what? You'll find it. And he who has the Son has life, and he who doesn't have the Son does not have life. Is that That's the truth of the matter. But you have to make the choice. And the choice is, do I stay or I leave? The example for us is Moses. Well, how did he leave? Well, you can only leave not on your own strength, but you got to be covered by the blood. That's what we did in communion this morning. So how were they delivered out of the world? Well, the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, take a lamb of the first year. Make sure it has no blemishes and kill it and sprinkle the blood on the doorposts of the house and when the death angel passes over, death will not come upon the firstborn of that house, but the firstborn of every Egyptian from the Pharaoh on down, including the firstborn of the cattle, the firstborn of the sheep, the firstborn of all of Egypt died that night and it says it was great mourning in the land of Israel, but death passed over all of the Hebrews that applied the blood. So the picture is obvious. It's no coincidence that Jesus is called the Passover Lamb. Pilate examining him four times says, I can't find any blemish or fault in him. He's innocent. And so we have, again, the teaching, New Testament, but the picture is by the blood. Death passes over you. Death passes over me because of the blood. Another good place for an amen. All right, so now we're saved. Now we're out of the world. Now what do we do? Well, the first act in Hebrews chapter 6, it says turning from dead works, turning by faith towards God, and the third thing it says in Hebrews 6, and the doctrine of baptism. To say as a grown person, I'm, I'm going to be baptized. Why? Because that's the teaching, that's the great commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, those who believe, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do we have a picture of that? We sure do. In 1 Corinthians um, chapter 10, we read, For I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that our fathers who were under the cloud all passed through the sea. All the Egyptians passed through the Red Sea, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Even the New Testament makes a direct correlation that the passing through the Red Sea was a type of baptism. But it's it's spot on with what happens with the Christian walk. Come out of the world by the blood of the Lamb, associate yourself by baptism, and... um, It says, and they all ate of the same spiritual food. I'll be coming to that in just a minute. They all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Some estimate as much as two million people were in the wilderness. Well, how do you feed two million people and water them? Well, this rock that followed them, that says, was Christ, and they ate this spiritual food called manna for 40 years but here so that we connect the dots correctly this wasn't just a happenstance thing where the, they uh, went through this was all part of God's divine plan it's because later it's going to become a picture of baptism so what happened when they went through the red sea well they came through just fine but when um, charles i mean when moses <laughs> stood up and say Watch the greatness of the Lord, or something like that. And the waters parted, and they walked through on dry land. Not muddy land, on dry land. And when they were all over, he closes it all up. Pharaoh had sent his soldiers after them. Now we read in Hebrews 11 that the Egyptians attempted to do so and were what? They were drowned the skeptics of the Bible said it's not the Red Sea, it's the Reed Sea. Now, the Reed Sea is two feet deep. And I have a problem with that because I just can't handle a whole Egyptian army drowning in two feet of water. And yet that's, what, that's all they seek to explain it away. Um, on the internet, people who try to um, there's, there's counterfeits on the internet and then there's some real deals on the internet. We had to do our own research. But we're going to put up a slide right now and we have chariot wheels in the uh, Red Sea and, and, um, and these are the remains of the chariots. These are not fakes. There are some fakes that are out there. But these aren't. These are the real deal. And they're dated back to the time that we're talking about here. What also is a picture of death. Something died in the Red Sea. Well, what died in the Red Sea? Egypt. The strength of Egypt died. Now, we're told that we're supposed to die daily. Yeah, you're baptized once, but Paul says you die daily, right? So do we have a picture of death as they pass through the sea and what died there while they were still alive? where they were burying what we say the old man. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, right? Old things pass away, Egypt, and all things become new. The very first thing they do when they get on the other side is they start singing praise songs, the song of Moses. And so that's what we do. Why? Because we're grateful we're out of bondage, we're set free. And in Romans chapter 6... Paul says, are you ignorant that we, as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? If we have been buried through him by baptism into death in order that even as Christ has been raised up from among the dead by the glory of the Father, so also we should walk in newness of life. Something died, but something went on living and um, it's not coincidence it's the Holy Spirit again connecting the old and the new and we have the Old Testament picture uh, being given to us now we get into the reality part of our Christian walk and we praise the Lord for everything don't we every morning we get up and we're thankful for the Lord for everything that happens the good the bad and the ugly right are you all liars I'm. <laughs> no Sometimes we complain. Sometimes we say, God, if you love me, why did this happen? Or why did this happen to this person? Or why is that? And some, we call them fence sitters with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, not really content with what the Lord has given to us, but we began to let our minds wander, even to the point where, We're praying for guys right now. Decided to go back to the world, and uh, for what? I don't know. Because we all know there's nothing there. We call it backsliding. And some people actually want to go back to Egypt. When Keith Green was alive, he he wrote a song, and that was the title of the album. So you want to go back to Egypt, and sort of set in a humorous setting. And uh, let's go back to that right now, back to the book of Numbers, chapter 11, because now as we get into the Christian walk, we're told um, in, in Numbers that there was a mixed multitude that went out with them. Well, what does that mean? Well, in any body of believers, there will always be some that um, have, have thoughts and ideas about actually going back to the old ways. In chapter 11, they began to yearn for the delicacies or the pleasures of sin or whatever. And in verse four, it's addressed, the setting here is they're complaining about the food. Because the Lord had given them manna to, sus- to sustain them their whole walk. Let's pick it up in verse 4. Now, the mixed multitudes, that means there were really people that were following Moses and were content. And yet others who were among them yielding to intense cravings. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Oh, we remember the fish and that we ate freely in Egypt and all those cucumbers and those melons and those leeks and those onions and that garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing except this manna before our eyes. Uh, Now the manna was like a cordon seed in its color, the color of bedlam. And the people uh, went out and gathered it and then on a millstone they, they beat it into a mortar and they cooked it in pans and they made cakes of it and uh, it tasted like the taste of pastry uh, prepared with oil. I mean they tried to do everything with manna manna bread, manna bread, manna cotti, manna burgers. They were sick of they tried everything to make it good, but they wanted spice. They wanted meat. And they began to complain about what God had given them to sustain them. Now here was the deal with manna. It was fresh every single morning. Every morning they'd wake up and like do on the ground, there was manna. And every person, if you like to eat a lot, you could collect all you want. If you like to eat a little, then you collected just a little. But you had to do it every day. If you thought, you know, I'm going to sleep in tomorrow, so I'm going to gather twice as much today so I don't have to get up early tomorrow morning. What would happen is that that manna would grow worms and it would spoil and it wouldn't be any good. And so you had to have your manna every single day fresh. One exception, the day before the Sabbath. The Lord says on that day gather twice as much and it won't grow worms and it didn't. And so this was the daily routine for 40 years, and quite frankly, they got sick of it. They wanted things spicier. God's provision was bread. And now let's begin to make some direct correlations here. Bread from heaven. Jesus said man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from above. In other words, this book right here, what do we talk about? We we talk about um, um, this book being food. And uh, we talk about the meat of the word and milk for baby Christians and meat for older Christians. The idea that it, it is it will sustain you if you keep um, eating the meat, the word. So as long as you're in the word and as long as you're continuing in the word, um, the Lord will get you from point A to point B. Another good place for an amen. But what's happening in the church today is people don't want Bible studies anymore. What? You're teaching through the book of Ezekiel? Or Jeremiah? That's not relevant. What does that have to do with my life? And that's just it. This Bible is not about your life. It's about Jesus' life. The volume of the book is about Jesus' But we get a little, you know, next week it's this chapter, that chapter, and we think, why can't we have a couple new programs? Something a little bit different. Why not bring in the Alpha course? I hear it's popular. I hear it's relevant. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> now just think this through. Just think, think this through. Just, just a little bit. Okay, let's be relevant. Does the Bible tell us to be relevant? No. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, right? That's being relevant. Be more worldly, be a little bit more spicy. Let's go back and spice it up a little bit. No, Romans chapter 12, verse one says, be not conformed to this world. Relevant and being cool is not where it's at. But it says, be transformed. Who needs to be changed? I need to be changed, not God's word. God gave us his word. Our job is to conform to its image, And when we start thinking that we have to be current, relevant, and that now we need other things rather than the manner that God provide us for us, then the church is falling into the same complaining mode that the children of Israel fell into. And there's a mixed multitude, and it's growing, and it's growing, and it's growing. And Bible-believing, born again, stubborn, we're going to stick to the word, period, are becoming fewer and fewer and fewer. Why should we be surprised? That's exactly what God's word said is going to happen. All right, we're building up to this. So the manna, here again, has got to be eaten daily. Gang, today's Bible study isn't going to be any good for you tomorrow morning. You have to get up and read your own Bible. And you have to have your own devotions. And um, we say that our spiritual life is more important than our physical life, but if we're really honest about it, which one do we feed more? I won't ask for a show of hands at this time. (laughs) But um, learning to be satisfied with the daily bread, knowing that what you get today is not going to be good for you tomorrow. You have to have it fresh. And uh, I see the Holy Spirit just connecting um, uh, these truths. So, We have it in the New Testament also. Some wanted to go back to the old ways. Some wanted to be current and cool and relevant. And to me it's nauseating. When I see, um, oh, I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to use the scripture as an example. Paul writing to Timothy. He's on his last leg, he's in prison. And he's talking about Demas, who was on a missionary journey with Paul. And he says in 2 Timothy um, 4, he says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved the present age, and is gone to Thessalonica. He wants to go back to Egypt. What did he have to do to do it? He he had to leave the mission field. God had called him to go with Paul. But Paul clearly said he loved the world, the present age, and he's gone. Um, And then he said, Cretans to Galatia and Titus to Delmea. Demas made his choice to go back to the old ways. Um, is there pleasure back there? Yes, but you will never be satisfied again after you've had the real thing. Um, I remember, I can't remember which pastor it was. It was, it was uh, some guy came in and says, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm going back to the old ways. And the wise pastor just looked at him and said, sin is hard. Sin is hard. About six months goes back, and the guy comes back into the office with his head down, and he looked at his pastor. He said, "Sin is hard. <laughs> Sin is hard. Because after you have tasted and um, of the Word, and it's the only thing that really satisfies the soul. Nothing else can fill that spot. Nothing else can fill that void. Doesn't mean you're not tempted." That's exactly what the devil tempted Jesus with. He was hungry. Well, you're God, turn these stones into bread if you're hungry. And he did not yield to the temptation, even in a moment of weakness. Instead, he rebuked the devil, and he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Brings me to a question. What does that choice involve? Choose to stay whom you will serve. There's a lot of trends and The Bible warns about in the last days um, um, people drifting from every wind of doctrine. Interesting choice of words. It means there's a lot of them floating around. Uh, Be careful, though, that you don't stray and get caught into every wind of doctrine. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10 in the New Testament and just line it up to the Lord being honest with what it, what it means to follow after him. It's counting the cost. What's not being presented today is telling people straight out, after you're born again, there's spiritual warfare. Parable of the sower said, as soon as the seed was sown, then comes the devil and tries to take it out of your heart lest you would believe and be saved. So what's the first thing great news that happens when you get saved? You get attacked by the devil, great. To try to get you to do what? Go back to where you came from. And he does it when you're young and vulnerable and you don't have a lot of spiritual meat on your bones. You don't see it coming. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. You know, I like like things black and white. And Jesus is black and white. Verse 32, whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. But he who denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father who is in heaven. And don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Well, didn't the angels say peace on earth, goodwill towards men? Not really. That verse really means that men who meet their God will have peace. That's what that verse literally means. But don't think that I've come to bring peace, not at all. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. For I, I will have come and set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law. This was real to me for the first two years of my conversion. Dad went to church every, every Sunday, put 20 bucks in the plate. And I said, Dad, it's, it's about knowing Jesus, not listening to him. And we argued about it for, for two years until he, he met the Lord personally for himself, but there was that that division between my, my dad and myself. A man's foes will be those of his own household. I know people today who won't darken the doors of Calvary Chapel because of family members that are of another denomination or persuasion, and they know exactly who we are and exactly what we stand for. And as a result of that, they're not manning up to the scriptures and let that be their deciding force for rather than having peer pressure put upon them not to get involved with strong Bible believing church and so we find a man's foes will be those of his own household you get the ultimatum if you become one of those born again holy rollers I am out of here and you get the, that ultimatum some of you that's real for you and that's really counting the cost the question now is is the Lord, and then verse 37, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Is that clear enough? I mean, if we just read it for what it says, is that clear enough? And that means prayer pressure is out of the question. And if the Lord is calling you to follow him, then he has to be first, no influence from mom, no influence from dad, wife, kids, children, what the Lord says, if he's calling you, but the ultimatum is being made, you do this. Another good place for an amen. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and who, who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This is old time religion, guys. It doesn't change. Truth never changes. Trends, being relative, is always changing. Every generation has a new relevant thing different from the generation from before. What doesn't change? Jesus said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. God says, I change not. So our job is to be content with the manna until we get home. What has God given us to sustain us? The, the word of God. Is that enough? It was according to Acts chapter 2 where we have the model. How do we keep ourselves from having one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom? Well, this is how the early church did it. Acts 2 verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That simply—that means Bible studies, guys. And in fellowship. In other words, who are you hanging with? Are you hanging with people that are non-believers? And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but here's the litmus test. Who's influencing who? Are you influencing them? Or are they influencing you? And if it's a draw, then get out. Good place for an amen. Who's influencing who? It's great if you're being the influence in light. Jesus was. But Those who didn't want to be influenced, the Lord clearly says, hey, they didn't want to hear a word we had to say in that town. Well, then shake the dust off your feet and go to the next one. And he moved on. So, if nothing's being accomplished, but you're still finding some sort of satisfaction hanging with people who don't know the Lord, I'm not saying don't do it. The Bible says clearly to do it, but with a purpose. And you wait for your opportunities. But if they're blowing you off and you say, well, forget about it, i am be th- never become like one of you. That's what my best friend told me before he got saved. <laughs> Dwight, I'll never become a Christian. I see how it's messed you up. I'll never become one of those. And then he met Jesus. And he's a missionary in Africa as I speak. Best friend A.D., best friend B.C., And they continued steadfastly in the apostle's doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. Guys, that's doable. You don't need another course. This is, uh, Jesus said it was his custom to be in the synagogue. It's our custom to have teaching through the Bible. It's our custom to have men's prayer and women's prayer. It's our custom to have chili bake-offs and be glad that I didn't enter this year. That's all I have to say. I got humbled last year, I don't know if I can take the rejection again. (laughs) Are you satisfied with the manna? Are you satisfied with what God said will get you through the 40 years? We see it today, we see that people aren't satisfied with it. They couldn't stand handle a Bible study in the book of Jeremiah if their life depended upon it. You know why? Because they want their ears scratched, they wanna hear something about them. What will make me feel good? No, it's not about you. We were in John 3 yesterday in men's prayer. There's three musts in John chapter 3. You must be born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the son of man, must be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. And then the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus, said this, he must increase. I must decrease. Decrease. So, the seeker-sensitive relative gospel that's out there today, that's a social gospel, is about you and what you can do to change the world. No, the Great Commission is still the same. And by the way, it's not the Great Suggestion, it's the Great Commission. And it is to, to be like Paul said: I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Are you content? with God's food, his word, and not letting this world conform you, you gotta realize you're pilgrims and strangers. We're not conformable. We're to be transformed from this world. Paul, in talking to Timothy, he charges him. He knows he's got a short time out. He's passing on, and Timothy, his young protege, is being raised up, so he says, Timothy, I charge you Before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Why? For the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. Oh, the delicacies and the leeks and the garlics and the onions of the world. Because they will have itching ears will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears from the truth and turn aside to fables. Instead of being content, not content like the mixed multitude saying, can't we spice things up just a little bit? Is it the same chapters? Does that mean next week we're going to be in 33, 34, and 35? Yep, that's exactly what it means. And then on into Daniel, which I'm looking very much forward to after we get through with Ezekiel. You have to make a choice. And if you look at your bulletin cover this morning, I'm going to turn, this book was written in 1988. It's called Whatever Happened to Heaven by Dave Hunt. And he saw it coming, and it was happening in his time, but Dave went to be with the Lord in 2013. We were friends, still good friends with T.A., And this was when the battle, it was already engaged. And the hope of heaven, that's what this is all about. It's not about the kingdom now. And when I use the word reconstructionism here, it's another name for dominion theology or kingdom now theology. It's the whole idea that the church is gonna Christianize the world and then the Lord will come back. That's what Dave is addressing here. Instead of, the rapture of the church, which people, most churches are afraid to touch with a 10-foot pole, that subject. I'll just read several paragraphs from Dave's book, Whatever Happened to Heaven? The church is now ripe for the developing views of history and prophecy that, uh, that either downplay or eliminate the rapture and put the emphasis on Christianizing in contrast to converting the world a new series of books espousing the idea that victory in Christ means a Christian taking over this world is coming off the presses and selling well. Such ideas are being successfully taken into the mainstream evangelical churches by the broadly based Coalition on Revival. The very existence of this organization with its um, degrading view of the rapture And the promotion of Reconstructionism represents a major theological shift in the church because of the uh, eminence among evangelicals of its memberships and its leaders. With the warning of the rapture hope, the relative new theology of Reconstructionism is experiencing astonishing growth. The issue raised by this movement are important, having launched an energetic campaign to convert the majority of Christians to their way of thinking. The Reconstructionists have issued the following challenge, a challenge that must be taken seriously and cannot go unanswered. Here's a challenge. We are calling the whole Christian community to debate us, just like Luther called them to debate when he nailed the 95 Thesis to the church door over four and a half centuries ago. And if we're correct about the God-required nature of our agenda, it will attract a dedicated following. It could produce a social transformation that will dwarf the Reformation. Now, this was back in 88. With 1988 to pass into history, the Reconstructionists are confident that much, if not most, of the church will fall like a ripe plum into the camp. And they are aggressively working to bring that about. To a leading spokesman spokesman for the pre-trib rapture, Gary um, North recently wrote, and he's anti, so as you might suspect, I'm quoting him now, we are preparing to give Mr. Dave Hunt a run for his theological money. We regard him as a Hal Lindsey of the late 1980s. I'd wear that as a badge of honor, and with the same Future. Oh yes, I remember you. You were you were the fellow who said Jesus was just around the corner because Israel was founded in forty eight one generation later. It didn't happen. It isn't going to happen. And in the year two thousand and two we'll be picking up the pieces when Israel gets pushed into the sea or converted to Christ. Uh, Schofieldism dies a fast death. Rest assured I have my manuscripts ready to go when either of these events happened. I can tell you one thing, uh, Israel's never going to be pushed into the sea, and Ezekiel 38 is just in a couple weeks. I'll quote one more, one more paragraph. Today, the once bright hope of the church being taken home to heaven by Christ at any moment has become the butt of crude jokes and a common subject of ridicule or scorn among many evangelicals. Being taken to heaven in the rapture has been to a large extent replaced by the rapidly growing new hope that the church is destined to take over the world, establish the kingdom of God. The focus has turned away from winning souls for citizenship in heaven, to political and social actions aimed at cleaning up society. Scarcely a sermon is being preached about the world to come. Attention is focused instead upon achieving success in this one. If we have a big big enough march on Washington and vote in enough of our candidates, then we can make this world a beautiful, safe, moral, and satisfying Christian place for our grandchildren. Uh, This is a very enticing scenario statement And many today are being seduced into it. That's just a a paragraph of what Dave was writing about in 1988. And my goodness, look at what's happened since that time. Let's widen this up this morning by turning to um, John chapter 2. You have to make a choice. In John 2, as we make our way through Egypt, what was Egypt. It was everything that the backslidden believer in Moses' time wanted. Wasn't content with the manna. He wanted to go back to Egypt. What happened to Egypt as we make our way through Ezekiel? Well, it admits that it was the glorious of all kingdoms in the first part of um, Ezekiel 29. But then By the end of the chapter, he says after Nebuchadnezzar is through with it, they're going to go into captivity. And when they come back from that captivity, it will be the lowliest of nations. Now, I've been to Cairo. I've seen the pyramids. And when you go there and and you look and and you see the, the pyramids that are there, Cairo is one of the dirtiest, filthiest cities I've ever seen on a planet. I've seen a lot of them. And um, except for the pyramids and the museum, they don't have really a whole lot go for them, and that's exactly um, what it it has come down to. So we have to choose like Moses. But if we're wise, then what we read in John two will make perfect sense why we should be content. So we're in uh, John chapter two, picking it up in verse fifteen. Very familiar verses i'm going to change the wording a little bit to tie into our study do not love egypt do not love the world or the things that are in the world for if anybody loves the world the love of the father isn't in him why because the father has called us out of this world for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life that's not of the father but it's of the world and here's the bottom line. Egypt passed away. And now we read in verse 17, And the world is passing away, and the lusts of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Gang, it's, it's a simple old saying, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Joshua, when he led the people in, he gave them their own choice. And he, he, he told them, to choose this day whom you will serve. And he says, go ahead and choose. You choose whatever you wanna choose. I thank the Lord for free will, amen? But he says, but as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. I have a friend who wrote a song, well-known song, and I'll, I'll close with it. I think it ties up the message. He just says, well, I've been around the mountain, and I can tell you there's no fountain that can relieve the thirst within. It's only through Jesus that the Lord God can feed us. It must be in him that we abide and be content with the manna that he gave us to get us from point A to B, amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we make our way through the book of Ezekiel, I pray for any of this morning that are sitting on the fence or maybe have never chosen you, that they realize that there's a, there's a cost that needs to be counted before they make the decision and that Moses, when he came to that place where he could have had the world and been in control of the world, your word tells us that rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season, he chose of his own free will to be associated with the suffering of God's people. Lord, thank you for letting us know what we're getting ourselves into, but thank you that we know that it's your word that's directing us. Help us be solid and not get tossed around by every new wind of doctrine that comes and goes. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.